Matthew chapter number 20 this evening. I'm thrilled to be able to be here, be with you, enjoy being able to come into the house of the Lord and worship. Uh, there's a lot of nonsense outside these doors. We ought to keep the nonsense out from the inside of these doors. Amen. And uh, we ought to come to worship and to exalt the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ought to come to get down to real business with God. And I believe the Lord would have us to do that this evening. Matthew chapter number 20 tonight. And I'd like to read just a few verses, beginning at verse number 20. And we'll read down to verse number 28. The Word of God says, Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left, in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, We are able. And he saith unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my father. And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you, but whomsoever shall will be great among you, let him be your minister." And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, I want you to look back at verse number 22. The Lord said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, We are able. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time that you've allowed us. Lord, we know that we're not here on accident, but Lord, you've purposed that we'd be here and we come here according to your divine counsels. Father, we ask that real business would be accomplished tonight. Lord, that if any has come and their attitude has not been to uh, do business with you, to be serious in these matters, Lord, we pray that you'd adjust their heart. Lord, that You'd mold them and shape them. Father, I pray that even my own wicked heart, inasmuch as I cannot know it, I pray that You'd bring it into subjection to Your Holy Spirit tonight. And Father, that we would uh, see things accomplished both for time and eternity and all for Your glory. Lord, we love You tonight and we ask all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. As we read in the 20th chapter of the book of Matthew, we come to a very interesting account of James and John and their mother approaching to the Lord Jesus and asking Him for something. Uh, One of the things that immediately strikes me as I read these verses is that they didn't get what they asked for. Can I ask you something tonight? How many of you have ever prayed for something you didn't get what you prayed for? Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. You know, we learn much about prayer, and we even call this midweek prayer service, oftentimes we'll call it the midweek prayer meeting. Prayer is a subject that is both uh, central and essential and vital to the well-being of your Christian walk. I'll tell you right now that if your prayer life isn't right, nothing else is going to be right. Uh, 
Uh, I got an email this week. Somebody had contacted me and uh, began to pour out their problems. I don't know this person, and that happens more often than you'd think. Uh, but, you know, when you got your church email out on the Internet, anybody can get to it. And uh, they began to talk about their spiritual walk. And they said, you know, I'm, just, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm saved. I, I made a profession when I was younger, but I've not lived right. I've not done right. And it just seems like God isn't anywhere near. And they said this, now I confess that I've not been in church in a lot of years, and I, I'm not reading my Bible, and I'm not praying, uh, but I don't know what's wrong. And uh, I messaged them back, and I tried to be kind best as I could. You know, I mean, it's all I can do to be kind to people I love. Somebody say amen alone a perfect stranger, but I told him, I said, well, it's no mystery to me why your relationship with God is in disrepair. If you're not in the house of God, and if you're not in the Word of God, and if you're not in the prayer closet communing with God, things aren't going to be okay. I mean, that's, that's like if I said, well, you know, you pray for my marriage, me and my wife, I don't know what's wrong, but we're just not getting along well. Now, I've not seen her in about 15 years, and, uh, you know, five years before that we quit talking, and uh, we don't ever learn anything about each other, spend time together, but I can't for the life of me figure out why our marriage is not better. I mean, it, it's no mystery if we're not communing with God and spending time with God why our relationship with God is not what it ought to be. And uh, if your prayer life is like mine, there's times when it is uh, abundantly blessed and it seems as though I can just get near the prayer closet, the windows of heaven open. I've had times like that. But there are also a lot of times when it seems like I pray and ask God for things and it feels like I've got a mile of concrete between me and the throne room. I know that's not true, but that's how I feel. And I pray and I talk to God and I ask Him for things. It seems like they don't happen or they don't happen the way that I'd like them to happen. But, you know, there's things we can learn from both of those instances in our lives. You've heard it put this way before. There's things that we learn on the mountaintop, but there's things that we learn in the valley. And though there are certainly things that we learn when we pray the right way, I'd suggest to you that there might be some things that we can learn when we pray the wrong way. It's been said before. Well, I'll go ahead and just read it to you how I jotted it down in a New York Times interview with Thomas Edison a reporter noted that he had tried hundreds of times to develop a viable filament for the incandescent light bulb. Now, now everything's halogen and, you know, everything's, uh, you know, low wattage. And, uh, but for the better part of a hundred years, every time that you turned on a light switch, that was a testament to the ingenuity of Mr. Thomas Edison. That, the reason that filament burned is because he took the time to develop and to invent it. And they pointed out that he had spent hundreds of occasions trying to develop this uh, this filament for this light bulb, and he had failed. And he stopped the reporter, and he said, you know, you look at it that way, but in my mind, I didn't fail hundreds of times. Rather, I discovered hundreds of ways to not invent a filament for the light bulb. You know, even in our failures, oftentimes we can learn some things. And as we look at the prayer that they prayed, I believe that we can learn some reasons why maybe our prayers... Don't get answered. Now, the Word of God puts it very simply in the book of James. It says that we have not because we ask not. And you say, but I've asked for things and haven't got them. Well, sometimes, James says, we ask amiss that we might consume it upon our own lust. God doesn't give us anything that will hurt us. Somebody say amen to that. I feel like we need to say that again. God doesn't ever give us anything that hurts us. Sometimes if God gave us uh, what we're praying for, it hurt us. But God doesn't give us those things. And so as we approach this passage of Scripture, I want us to consider maybe some things we can learn from their failed prayer here in Matthew chapter number 20. But let me point out some things they did right. Can I do that first? Now, here, here is why. Because any time that you're trying to figure out what went wrong, you need to first figure out what you did right. 
You see, what Mr. Edison was saying is by eliminating all that was wrong, I discovered what was right. But oftentimes when we look at a failure in something, you eliminate everything that's right and you're only left with what's wrong. If you've ever worked on a vehicle, you know sometimes what you try to do is go through and test the elements that are working to try to find out what went wrong. Well, stop and think about all the things that were right about their prayer. I I just wrote a few of them down. I want you to notice first off that they had the right attitude when they approached the Lord. It says back in verse number 20, how did they come? Now, they didn't come walking down the aisle, popping bubble gum, thinking about where they was going to eat at Shoney's. They didn't approach unto the Lord with a petulant or childish attitude. The Bible says that when they came to Him, they came worshiping Him. So they evidently were in a praying mindset when they approached the Lord. Let me say, it's a good thing when we come down to serious prayer. And listen, I'm not saying that every time you bless the food that you've got to sound like a North Carolina hacking preacher. I'm not saying you've got to pray the glory down every time that you ask God for traveling mercies. But when you get in the prayer closet and you really mean to do business with God, we ought to have an attitude of worship and humility and submission and adoration towards the Lord God of heaven. And I believe they had that. I mean, when they came, they came with the, the right attitude. I want you to notice, number two, that they were specific in what they asked for. I mean, so specific that they said the right hand and the left hand. Now, if I had to guess, John probably thought he was going to be on the right hand, and James probably thought he was going to be on the right hand. Maybe they didn't discuss it because they didn't want to argue. But suffice it to say that when they prayed, they asked for something specific from God. And I think that's a pretty good thing to do, don't you? You've heard it said before that general prayers don't get specific answers. I think it's a good thing when we pray to speak specifically about what we're asking God to do. I think it bolsters and builds our faith and our prayer life to pray in specific ways. I've noted to you before that oftentimes people pray. They say, God, I pray that you'd bless our church. And then when God shows up and blesses in a way they're not expecting, they don't give Him praise because they weren't specific enough when they prayed. They were specific when they prayed. They asked Christ for something very detailed and deliberate. I think that's a pretty good thing. I want you to notice they claimed a promise. Now you say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, remember what the Lord said back in chapter 19, verse 28. He said, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of His glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Let me say that the greatest foundation for any prayer that we pray is a promise of God. That's the greatest foundation we can ever have. Listen to me. There's some things that when I pray, I know I'm praying for the will of God. I know, when, listen, when I pray that God would bless our church, I know I'm praying in the will of God. I know it's the will of God. Now, He may not bless it the way I expect. He may not bless it the way I'd want. But I know it's the will of God for Him to bless our church. When I pray and ask God to strengthen my marriage, I know I'm praying within the will of God. When I pray and I ask God to show me things out of His Word, I know I'm praying in the will of God. And each of these things have promises that we can cling to as a bedrock foundation for what we're asking God. They had a promise they claimed. And I don't mean none of this nonsense, name it and claim it stuff that you see these TV preachers talking about. I'm talking about they, they were asking Christ for something that had a scriptural foundation. They claimed a promise. I'd note also that these three followers evidently had some faith. Now, you say, well, what do you mean? Well, I'd point to two reasons I'd say that they had faith. Number one, what they asked, they asked in public. Have you ever had something you was praying for, but you didn't want to tell nobody because you was afraid you wouldn't get it? 
something that you was asking God to do for you or to do in your life, and there was maybe some anxiety. You didn't want to tell folks that you was praying about it because you was afraid that it wouldn't happen or people would think ill of you if you did not get the answer that you hoped. When they prayed this, they prayed it within earshot of the other ten disciples, no telling how many people were around. I mean, they had faith that Christ would answer it. Not only did they have faith that Christ would answer it, they had faith that Christ would be able to answer it. Do you remember what he's talking about back in the earlier portions of the chapter? Look back in chapter number 20. Look at verse number 17. It says, And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. Notice this. And the third day he shall rise again. Now, they believed that or they wouldn't have been praying this way. So they not only believed that, that God would answer it, but they believed that God was able to answer it. I mean, they had faith in their prayer life. I think that's an important thing. The Bible says if you ask anything, believing you shall receive it. I think so oftentimes we don't receive the answer that we hope for because we don't really believe God's capable or willing to do what we're praying and asking Him to do. I think it's a good thing to bathe our prayer life in faith. Not only did they have faith, I'd note this too, that all three of them agreed together about this. How many of you have ever heard somebody say before, well, if three people, two or three people agree, it's going to happen. The reason they say that is because Christ had said in chapter 18 of Matthew that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. Now, they had three people here. They had two boys in the mind. All three of them were agreeing. All three of them believed that Christ could and would do this. All of these things were in place. So here's the question. What went wrong? What went wrong in their prayer? Why was it that even though they followed every single guideline, even though they crossed every T, they dotted every I, still the Lord looked at them and said, No. Could it be that he was trying to teach them some things about prayer? And I jotted three things down, and they're not real deep, they're not real profound, but I believe if we can grasp them that they'll help us in our prayer life. They had everything right, but could it be that, number one, one of the things that Christ was trying to teach them is that prayer is really more about relationship than it is about rules. Now you say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, can I give you an example? Uh, there are a lot of rules. There are a lot of guidelines. There are a lot of standards. There are a lot. Of, we might even call them pointers or advice or counsel or wisdom about how to pray in Scripture. We went through a few of them a moment ago. But they did all these things right. Still didn't get their prayer answered. You know, we live in a society that is so mechanized and formulaic. We think that if we put A and B and C together, we're automatically going to get D. We do it with every facet of life. I mean, listen, everything in your home operates off buttons. Am I right? Everything in your hand, if it don't operate off buttons, it operates off a touch screen that's got pictures of buttons on it. We live in a world where we believe that if we can just have the magic formula, whatever it might be, we live in a scientific age where two and two is four, and it always will be, uh, where in chemistry, if you add so many elements and so many components and such a formula, you're going to get an expected result. And I fear that sometimes we have relegated our prayer life to just a matter of a magic formula and following a set of rules without there being any real substance and relationship to it. Can I tell you something? Your, your, your prayer life is more about the time you spend with God than it is about the things you get from God. 
Your prayer life is more about falling in love with Him than getting something from Him. And when they prayed this, I believe one of the reasons that He didn't answer is because He wanted them to understand that even though they had everything right, their hearts still had some things wrong. I thought about the way a marriage functions, you know, and, and I mean, men, you can testify to this, and women could too, there are certain things, but men, you can testify, there's certain guidelines in a marriage that you follow, am I right? There are certain things that you just don't do. I mean, listen, if she asks you if she looks fat in it, she don't. It don't matter what it is. I mean, listen, I, I, I don't care if she's wrapped in a shower curtain, she don't look fat in it. I don't care if she's got a parka that would keep her warm and toasty at 50 below. She don't look fat in it. It doesn't matter what it is. She never looks fat in it. That's a pretty good rule, don't you think? I think you've heard this before. Pretty good rules. You don't ever go to bed angry. You ever heard that before? I think that's a good thing. You know, I wish I could say that I I was never guilty of that. There's been times that I have been. Uh, You know, I'll tell you this. It's a safe thing, men, every three days to ask your wife if she did something different with her hair. Somebody say amen to that. It don't matter. Listen, if you've been snowed in, I mean, we're in snowy weather. If you've been snowed in, if you've sat in the same room for three days solid, on the third day, look at her and say, Honey, have you done something with your hair? Because it's always better to be safe, somebody help me, than sorry. Those guidelines are there. But let me ask you something. If the only thing that, that was the substance of your marriage was just a few simple rules that you followed, you'd probably never tell her that, she looked fat. You'd probably never uh, miss a, a haircut. You, you'd probably never say anything amiss. But there probably wouldn't be much love present either. If all you ever did was try to follow a few set guidelines, and can I tell you something, men? You'll still get in trouble even doing that. How many times you heard somebody say, and I've heard it in public, I've heard some old boy look at his wife and say, just tell me what I did wrong. Despite your best efforts... It doesn't matter if you follow all the rules because marriage is not about rules. Of course it has rules. And those rules may even be helpful. And they may even guide you. But at the end of the day, a marriage is not about rules. It is about relationship. And if there's no real relationship, then there's no real marriage. I think our prayer life is sort of that way. And when we begin to examine the way that they prayed, we notice a few things that were present, that are kind of ugly when you get to think about them. I want you to think with me about this. Notice their position to the Savior that they wanted. They said, Lord, I want to be on your right hand. I want to be on your left hand. Now, that sounds noble. They want to be close to the Lord Jesus Christ. But when you stop and consider the reaction that everyone, whether it be Old Testament, New Testament, I don't care if it was under the Adamic covenant, I don't care if it was under the Noahic covenant, I don't care if it was uh, under the, the Davidic covenant, in every dispensation, in every instance, when a person came in close proximity to the Son of God, they always fell to their face and began to worship. Uh, oftentimes they'd plead, they'd say, Lord, don't strike me dead, don't kill me. They always fell down prostrate before Him. And yet we find these two saying, Lord, I want to be just almost on the very same level with You. Let me tell you something. We, we need to understand that we're not praying right until we're praying with our face to the ground. And I'm not talking about a physical position. I'm talking about in the spiritual sense of the word. You know how the, the, the Hebrew man prayed in the Old Testament? When they prayed, they'd kneel on their feet. They would bow their head to the ground. They'd lift their hands towards heaven. And that was the position that they would pray in. And it was a sign, it was a symbol to the God of heaven that they were not even worthy to lift their eyes into His throne room. And they were there just petitioning in humility and in submission and in contrition before Him. Let me tell you, the way we get things done in the prayer closet is we understand our proper position before the Lord Jesus Christ. 
you want to know what real humility is. Real humility is not self-deprecation. Humility is not talking about how bad and how terrible you are. Humility is when you acknowledge how low you are relative to how exalted He is. True humility is birthed out of the presence of God because only in the presence of God can we get the right perspective on who and what we are. And at this moment, what they were praying and asking God for, what they were asking Christ for was a place of prominence that not even the Son of God could give to those that were around Him. He said, only my Father can give this. I think they had the wrong relationship to the Savior. I think they had the wrong relationship to self. I want you to notice the pride that they had. I mean, we sort of already hinted at it, but they really thought they were somebody. You know, they thought because of who they were. I mean, they're the sons of thunder. They're the sons of Zebedee. Uh, these are, uh, we're not talking about fellas on the fringe, okay? We're not talking about Matthew. We're, you know, we're not talking about, uh, you know, uh, Judah the lesser. I mean, we're talking about James and John. And John the beloved, the one that laid his head upon the chest beat of God. And they thought because of that, they deserved a place. Can I remind you that God is no respecter of persons? Uh, Let me tell you something. The child of God that gets up from the altar, the new convert that's born again at a moment's notice, they've just yielded their heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, they're on as much praying ground, if not probably more praying ground than you and I that sit here right now. God is no respecter of persons. And sometimes we get the idea that God's going to answer our prayers because He needs us. Let me tell you something. The God of heaven needs no man. Uh, there's not a single one of us. Uh, he wouldn't be any less God if, if He were to cast us into hell right now. I understand it break His word. I'm not, I'm not dismissing that. But I'm saying who He is as God is not dependent on who you and I are. He's God no matter what. We see they had kind of the wrong relationship to themselves. They really thought they were somebody. And when we take the proper position and we acknowledge, listen, God doesn't have to answer our prayers. God does not have to hear us. I know He's bound Himself by His Word, but you understand that He consciously and willingly and sovereignly bound Himself to His Word. He didn't have to do that to be God. He did that because He loves us. And the sooner we understand that, I think the sooner it will help our prayer life. Then I want you to notice their priority. Or I've kind of put it this way, their relationship to the Savior and their relationship to themselves. But I want you to notice the relationship they had to the servants that were around them. I don't know that we think about this real often, but did you know that your prayers affect other people? Now, I'm not just talking about when you pray and ask that God would save somebody. I'm not just talking about when you pray and ask that God get a hold of somebody's heart. I mean, when you pray, listen, when, when you pray and ask for that job, that means somebody else ain't going to get that job. I mean, listen, when, when you pray, when you pray and ask God to do something in your life, that affects a myriad of people that are around you. And in fact, they noted that it affected them. Remember what the promise was in chapter uh, 19. The promise was that there's 12 thrones. And of those 12 thrones, only two of them is going to be one on the right hand and one on the left hand. And when the other ten disciples heard this in verse 24, it says they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. You see, the truth is, and he conveys this to him later on, he says this, but it shall not be so among you, but whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. Not just the servant of God, but the servant of those that are around them. You know, if they'd really been where they needed to be, you know what they would have prayed? They would have picked out the lowliest, sorriest, most miserable of the disciples, and they would have said, Lord, put him at your right hand. Lord, put him at your left hand. Lord, pull them up. Lift them up. Help them. Strengthen them. Encourage them. Let me tell you something. When we really have the right relationship to those around us, we're going to pray and we're going to ask God to bless and use and help them in their daily walks. I wonder how many of us 
It's been years since we've prayed for God to do anything for anybody other than us. You know, that's what intercessory prayer is. Praying for another person. Praying, and I don't like this phrase. We might say praying on their behalf. I mean, they have to pray. Our prayers don't substitute for their prayers. But we're not praying for us. We're praying for them. We're not asking God to do something for us. We're asking God to do something for them. Well, at this moment, they didn't care anything about the other ten disciples. They said, Lord, I want that, I want that preferential place at your side. They weren't thinking about those that were around them. Let me tell you something. Until you're right with God, until you're right in your own heart, and until you're right with those around you, in as much as you can be. I like that the Bible says, as much as in me is, we're to live peaceably with all men. There's some folks you can't live peaceably with. I understand that. But in as much as you can, I mean, in as much as you can, if you're not right with the Lord and right with you in your own heart and right with those around you, your prayer life isn't going to be right. And it doesn't matter if you follow all the rules. Listen, it doesn't matter if you believe God can and will do. It doesn't matter if there's a promise to back it up. It doesn't matter if you come worshiping and on your face before God. It doesn't matter if you get two or three folks to agree together with you, none of those things matter if your relationship isn't right. Prayer is really more about relationship than rules. I'd note a second thing that I think they probably learned from this is that prayer is more about taking orders than it is about giving orders. You know, we've sort of made God the cosmic bellhop, haven't we? We ring the prayer bell and we expect Him to snap His heels, stand to attention, and do exactly what we ask Him to do. But you know what they learned? They learned this, that their proper place in the prayer closet was not there to dictate God's will. It was They were there to discover God's will. You know the right way if they wanted to approach the Lord about this? It's not that what they were asking was so intrinsically wrong. I mean, there were 12 thrones, and evidently it's the will of God uh, that somebody sat on his right hand and on his left hand ruling and reigning in the kingdom. It's not that what they were asking was so intrinsically wrong. It's not that they didn't do everything in the right way and approach Him in the right way. The problem is this. Instead of saying, Lord, this is where I want to be, they should have been praying, Lord, where do you want me to be? What do you want of my life? Let me tell you something, prayer is a lot more about God getting more of us than it is about us getting more of God. When we get serious about prayer, that's when we come and say, Lord, I want to know what your will is. Would you reveal and show? You know, I feel like oftentimes the reason we're silent is because we don't, or the reason that heaven's silent is because we don't want to hear what heaven's going to tell us. Oftentimes I think that we pray and we come in and we want to boss God around and tell Him what to do. Now, don't, uh, don't misunderstand me. I'm glad that prayer is asking and receiving. I'm glad that God answers prayer. I'm glad that God hears our petitions. I'm glad that God gives us things. When, we're pray, when we pray, we're to pray, give us this day our daily bread. But don't think that all prayer is is coming in and giving God a Christmas list. Saying, Lord, this is what I want out of you today. Now, what it's really about is saying, Lord, what is it that you want out of me today? What is it that you require out of me today? I wonder how many of us, when we approach to God, we approach. And listen, our list isn't the blank canvas. Our heart is the blank canvas. And we're asking God to fill it with His will and wishes and desires. That's the way we approach unto God. Lord, what do you want out of me? What do you want out of my life? And I don't just mean in the big things. I mean, obviously, in the big things. I wonder how many of us approach to God and say, Lord, on this day, I mean, you're going to wake up tomorrow on Thursday, January 28th. How many of us will wake up and say, Lord, this day belongs to you. This is a day that you've made. I want to rejoice in it. I want to serve you. I want to be used of you. I want to glorify you. I can't, I can't control everything that will happen today, Lord. I, I can't decide everything that will happen today. But for the path that you've laid out for me, I want to serve you. 
I want to bring you glory. I want to do what you'd have me to do. Listen, if it means eating toast instead of biscuits, God, that's what I want to do. If it means wearing my blue shoes instead of my red shoes, God, I'll wear my blue shoes. Whatever it is that you ask out of my life, God, that's what I want. And I'm willing to do it today. That's how we ought to approach unto God. Not to dictate, but to discover His will and to do His will. To do His will. There's no point in knowing it if you're not going to do it. And I think that's a lot of the reason that God doesn't tell us His will as much as we wish He did is because He knows we're not going to do it anyway. Are you aware that you're judged in direct accordance with whatever light that God has revealed to you? When God gives you light, He expects you to walk in. And I think a lot of times the silences of heaven are the grace of God because our carnal and rebellious spirit wouldn't walk in obedience to what God asks of us anyway. I think a lot of times when we ask God to show us, we're not really willing to do what He shows us. You remember what the mother of Jesus said to the men that were gathered there in Cana of Galilee. He said, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Do it. Now, I understand at the risk of oversimplifying and understating things. But let me say this, that the Christian life really boils down to whatever he saith unto you, do it. Do it. There's no telling how many of us that the revealed will of God has become a stumbling block. Because when God revealed it, we rebelled against it. There's no telling how many of us have unfinished business with God. I want you to listen carefully to what I'm saying. There's no telling how many of us have unfinished business with God. Things that have been laid on the table that you know you've never done it. God knows you've never done it. And it lays there. Sin lies at the door. And you still, to him that knoweth to do good, Romans 14 says, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. That's become sin at the door in your walk with God. You know that it lays there. You know you need to do it. You know you need to step up. You know you need to repent. But what should have been a blessing has become a burden and a barrier in your walk with God because you've refused to obey. See, the reason we pray is so we can know the will of God and do it. And my will is not always to do God's will. But in the prayer closet, my will can be bent to His will. And He can get more of me rather than me getting more of Him. I think they probably learned it's more about taking orders, you know, than it is about giving orders. But then I think they probably learned this, that prayer really has as much, if not more, to do with giving than it does with receiving. Isn't this interesting what he says? Look at verse number 22. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. He says, You don't know what you're asking. Now, now, what, what would we interpret that as? I mean, if, some, if somebody said that to us today, if, if I came to you and I said, uh, you know, Brother Richard, I, I need a ride to the store. Can you give me a ride to the store? And he looked at me and said, Hey, buddy, listen, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking of me. What we would assume is that what I have asked is going to be a great inconvenience or cost or sacrifice to him. They said, Lord, I want to sit on your right hand or on your left. He said, you don't know what you're asking for. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they still didn't get it. They say unto him, we are able. He says, ye shall drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left, it's not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared to my Father. You know what he was saying? He was trying to get them to understand that that throne they wanted to sit on, that wasn't just a recliner. It wasn't, listen, it wasn't just a dining room chair. It would come at great personal sacrifice of him. For that throne to sit there and them to sit on it, he was going to have to suffer and become sin for you and I. And there was a great cost to what they were asking. 
you know, we all think of prayer as a matter of receiving. And I, and I was thinking as I was preparing this message and, and meditating, you know, a lot of times I'll prepare a message and God will give it to me and I'll spend a while just meditating on it and sort of, you know, marinating in it. And when I was thinking about it, I thought about old John Rice. You know, how many of you know who John R. Rice is? Raise your hand. How many of you ever had heard of or maybe you've read his book, Prayer Asking and Receiving? You've ever, you ever heard that? I, you know, he, he, he boiled it down to that. And I, and I understand what he means, that in its most basic, fundamental, elemental form, that prayer is really a matter of asking and receiving. But let me say that there is much more to the prayer life than just that, because so often when we're asking something of God, we don't understand what we're asking of Him. And when we receive something of God, we really can't comprehend what we're receiving. Do you realize that for them to have what they were asking, it was going to come at great personal cost, not only to the Savior, but to them as well? He says, are you willing to walk that road with me? Are you willing to drink the cup that I'm willing to drink of? Are you willing to be baptized? He was talking about his death. Are you willing to be baptized in the way that I'm going to be baptized? He speaks. He sort of hints at the fact that they will be spiritually included in that. But they weren't necessarily going to be physically included in that, nor would they have wanted to be. You see, if they could have reckoned the cost, they probably would have never asked for it. But the thing they had to understand is that for every answered prayer, something has to be given. Something has to be done. There's a cost to everything in life. I want you to consider this. I think there was a cost in sacrifice that the Lord was going to have to make. But let me say that there's times in our life when for God to give us what we're asking, there's going to have to be some sacrifice in our life as well. I speak as a preacher, and I hope that's okay. I pray and ask for the power of God. I do. I pray. I ask God to do it. Not just in front of you. I ask God to do that. You know, sometimes that means there's some things I have to give up to have the power of God in my life. You might pray and you might ask God to fix your marriage, but has it occurred to you there might be some things that you're going to have to give up for your marriage to be fixed? You pray and you ask God to get a hold of your children. I know people in this room pray and asking God to get a hold of their children. You pray and ask that. Have you ever thought there may be some things you're going to have to give up to see that happen? It could be your pride in you being a a greater witness to them. It could be your time in spending more time in prayer. It could be any number of things that it might cost you. It could just be the heartache and the tears of rending your heart before God and pleading with Him. But every time that we pray, there's a cost to what we're asking God for. And they didn't understand that. You know, sometimes the reason that we don't get an answer to prayer is we've asked God to do something that we're not really willing or ready for Him to do yet. And we've not spent the time to consider what it's going to cost. I think it costs us something in sacrifice. I think they understood after this that it was going to cost something in submission. Now, I don't know that we can really understand this till we get to heaven. But there is a sense, and I understand that the, the will of the Father and the will of the Holy Ghost and the will of the Son were always and have always and will always be in perfect harmony. I understand that the Godhead was not rent. I, I, I'm aware of that. But there was a part of Christ that did not uh, look forward necessarily to the suffering of Calvary. The Bible says, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. And He prayed, and what did He ask? Now this was for the throne they're talking about. You understand that? When they said, we want to sit on your right hand on your left, He said, well, to do that, I'm going to have to die on Calvary. He likened those, He connected those things together eternally. And so He's done this. He has pointed to that and said, that will be the source of what you're asking. 
And when the time came for him to die on Calvary, he prayed. And, and I don't understand all of it, and I don't pretend to understand all of it, but I know he prayed and he had to say, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done, O Lord. It took some submission for these thrones to come into existence. You know, sometimes when we pray, we think we're just going to come down and just ask God for something casually. And I think sometimes God does answer those things. I'm not being dismissive of that. But sometimes the things that we're asking God for, we're going to have to subdue our flesh. And we're going to have to surrender our will before it can be accomplished. You know, I think about Moses. Moses had a certain idea about how he wanted the children of Israel to come out of Egypt. And you don't really understand this till you read the book of Acts. When you read the book of Exodus, it almost just sounds like, you know, uh, Moses is, is growing up in, in uh, you know, the Egyptian household in Pharaoh's house, and, and he knows he's a Jew, and one day he sees a Jew uh, getting beaten, uh, you, know, uh, by, you know, by another man, and he kills him and buries him, and then all of a sudden he's caught and just heads out of town. He spends 40 years on the backside of the desert. It seems as inconsequential as that, just a mistake that Moses made. But when you read in the book of Acts, you know what Stephen said about what Moses did? Stephen said that he wished not, that, or that they wished not how that God would by his hand deliver them out of Egypt. You see, Moses, when he slew that man, his idea was to garner favor and loyalty amongst the Jewish slaves and to be exalted as a leader of a rebellion and to lead them out of Egypt by his hand. He's a 40-year-old man, and that's young now, but that was younger even then. He's sort of in the prime of his life, and he knows that God wants him to lead them out of Egypt, and he's got his way of doing it. But then all of a sudden, his way blows up in his face, and now he's got a choice to make. Is he going to continue to strive, or is he going to surrender and do it God's way? You see, the truth is, Moses was right. God was going to lead them out of Egypt, but he wasn't going to do it by Moses' hand. He was going to do it by his own hand. And he wasn't going to lead them out by parting an army. He was going to lead them out by parting a sea. He was going to do it in his own way that Moses could have never reckoned. I promise you that never in Moses' mind as a 40-year-old man did the vision of the Red Sea bursting and, and walling up and dry ground being revealed. That never occurred to him. But you know, most of the time the will of God doesn't occur to us. That's why it has to be revealed to us. God does things in wondrous ways. And sometimes when we're praying, it's not that we don't have all the little rules kept and all the little guidelines and all the little particulars. Really what it is at the end of the day, we're asking God to rubber stamp our plans for our life instead of asking God what He wants of us. You see, prayer is really more about us giving God more of us than it is about God giving us more of Him. I think about Joshua. Can I share that with you? I think about Joshua in Joshua chapter 5. Here Joshua is standing on the hillside and he's getting ready to lead the, the Israelites in battle against uh, the walled city of Jericho. And uh, they cross over Jordan. And before they go in, uh, Joshua is up on the hillside and all of a sudden a man appears in front of him. And this man has a sword in his hand and Joshua immediately perceives him as a threat. And we know if we studied our Bibles, that was a theophany. That was Christ. That was the Son of God before Bethlehem appearing on the hillside. But it's interesting what he asks him. Joshua looks at the Son of God. Now, he doesn't know who he is, but he looks at him and he says, Are you for us or are you against us? And I think about our prayer life, and you know, so oftentimes that's all that it is. We come into the prayer closet, we say, Lord, here, these are my demands. 
Now, are you going to help me or are you going to get out of my way so I can do it? God, are you, listen, you going to help me get that job or are you going to get out of my way so I can get that job? Lord, are you going to help me fix my marriage or are you going to get out of the way so I can fix my marriage? Now, we don't say it that way. We don't, we don't approach God that way. But when it really boils down to it, we're not coming and saying, Lord, I'm poor and needy and helpless, and if you don't do it, I can't do it for myself. What we're really saying is, Lord, I'd like it if you'd do this for me before I have to do it for myself. Lord, are you for me or are you against me? You know how the Lord answered him? He said, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. Now, I understand that that term, host of the Lord, oftentimes reflects angelic beings and a spiritual army. But I don't believe that's what the Lord was saying. You see, camped out in the valley was a whole army. And that's Joshua's army. And he says, Lord, are you for us or are you against us? And the Lord looks at him and says, no, Joshua. Joshua, I'm above you. You see, you think that's your army down there. But Joshua, that's not your army. That's my army. You think this is your war, but this isn't your war. You think this is your battle, but the battle is the Lord's. You think you're running this thing, but in actuality, Joshua, I'm running this thing. If you want to run this thing, uh, then the walled city of Ai is going to whoop you. But if you'll let me run it, then the great walled city of Jericho can't even stand before even the trumpet blowing. If you'll let me do this, if you'll just get out of the way, Joshua, and let me do it, instead of asking me to get out of the way so you can do it, then the victory can be won. I think in submission that prayer is more about giving than receiving. But I think one last thought that in service, it's really more about giving than it is receiving. You know, the thing that they didn't understand was that as they asked the Lord Jesus to do this, they wanted these thrones. Someone was going to have to go and die for them. And here's the question that must be asked. Were they willing to? That's what Christ asked them. He says, you understand, you don't know what you're asking. You understand that for this to take place, that I'm going to have to die on the cross of Calvary, for this to happen, are you willing to do that? Can you drink of the cup that I'm going to drink of? Can you be baptized with the baptism wherewith I'll be baptized? Can you do that? They said, sure we can. He said, you still don't know what you're asking. You know, I think sometimes when we pray and ask God to do something, the reason that we don't get the answer that we hope for is because God's waiting on us to yield and be the vessel to be used of Him. I think about Moses again. Moses was burdened for the Israelites, and God used him to deliver them. I think about Nehemiah. Nehemiah prayed for Jerusalem. You know what God did? God sent Nehemiah. Let me tell you something. You're burdened for your children. It may be that God uses somebody you've never met before. It may be that some voice out of the wilderness, God sends them by their way and witnesses to them. But it could be. And let me tell you something. I've had people tell me time and time again, Preacher, pray for me. Preacher, pray for my kids. Preacher, go by and see my kids. And I think off to to myself, well, I'm willing to do it. And I'm happy to get the blessing. And I'd love to be used of God. Could it be that it's you that God is waiting on to go and to do that work and to be that witness? I'm glad God uses people to reach folks that I can't reach. I'm glad that there's even family members that I have that they won't listen to me, but they might listen to a stranger. But there's a lot of people in my life that God's given me an open door with. And the thing is, we're saying, God, would you go to them? And God's saying, no, would you go to them? You know, you think about Isaiah. Isaiah spends the first five chapters of the book of Isaiah talking about how bad everyone else is. And then in chapter number 6, God just turns things around on him. And shows him a vision of his throne room. And Isaiah, he's been pronouncing woe on everybody. You know, I mean, he's been woeing this fella and that fella and this woman and that kid. I mean, everybody's woe. And then finally he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I am undone. 
And once he got in his proper place, you know what he said? He wasn't asking God to send someone else. He said, here am I, Lord. Send me. Send me. If no one else will do it, I'll do it. Lord, I'm here for you. I'm not expecting you to be here for me. I'm glad you are here for me. But, but I'm here in the prayer closet, not so that you can be here for me. I'm here so that I can be here for you and serve you and yield to you. We pray all the time for God to send missionaries. Why wouldn't he send you or me? We pray all the time and ask God to call preachers. How many of you listen? I understand. we got some young people in the room, but we got a lot of older people in the room too. I hear old people all the time talk about how it used to be. Have you ever heard, have you ever heard an old person talk about how it used to be? Anybody? Am I alone in that? Okay. Oh, boy, there used to be so many God-called preachers. There used to be so many God-called... Yeah, and how many of those God-called preachers were, were drunks, were drug addicts? How many of those God-called preachers... Listen, most of us could name half a dozen that got to preaching after they was 50 years old. Why couldn't it be you or me? Why couldn't God use us in that capacity? You see, we're praying, we're asking God to do it, and God's waiting to use us to do it if we'll just yield to Him in service. See, the thing that they began to realize is that it really wasn't about the the T's being crossed or the I's being dotted. And you may be here today and you may have been banging your head against the wall and you can't figure out why God won't do this, but the reality is it's not the specifics of your prayer life, it's the spirit of your prayer life. And if you get adjusted, get yourself in the right place and understand that that it's really more about relationship than it is rules. It's not just about asking God to do something. It's about communing with Him. If you'd realize that it's not about what you want, it's about what He wants, maybe there's some things that God would do for us if we just yield and say, Lord, do whatever you want in my life. Reveal your will. And maybe there's some things that we've asked God to do and He's just waiting on us to yield. And if we'd yield to Him, we'd find out that He'd use us for that need in our lives and He'd bring glory out of it for Himself. I wonder where it could be in our prayer life that something's got off track. And I wonder if we're serious enough about it tonight to yield and get that back on track and to see our prayer life restored and living for the glory of God.